Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen. My name is Paul Diggle, Chief Economist here at Aberdeen. And I'm Luke Bartholomew, Senior Economist at Aberdeen. And today we are talking to Chris Miller. He's an Associate Professor at Tufts University. He's an academic and historian, and he's the author of Chip Wars, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. It's a Financial Times Business Book of the Year. It's a really riveting account of the history and the geopolitics of microchips. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So Chris, you write in the book that semiconductors have defined the world we live in, determining the shape of international politics, the structure of the world economy, and the balance of military power. Our world is defined by quintillions of transistors and a tiny number of irreplaceable companies. And it's that that contrast, the technological marvel that is fitting an ever-increasing number of transistors onto a chip and the concentration of that expertise commercially, geographically, that's really the theme at the, at the heart of the book. But I want to start by asking you a little bit about the news of the day, which is, of course, the enormous performance of a small number of technology companies in the US, NVIDIA first and foremost amongst them. And perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the role that NVIDIA plays uh, in the chip ecosystem as a way into this topic. Well, NVIDIA is the world's leading producer of a type of chip called a GPU, a graphics processor unit, which uh, was a type of chip that was actually invented for computer graphics. But uh, it became clear around a decade ago that the same underlying math for computer graphics was also good for training AI systems. And NVIDIA bet very heavily on converting this type of graphics chip to AI uses. And so today, uh, when you look at sophisticated AI systems from the various GPTs uh, kind of across the board, most of them are trained on NVIDIA chips. And the company has not exactly a monopoly, but something pretty close to one uh, on this market, both because its chips are extraordinarily high quality, but also because it's got a a software ecosystem around uh, its chips that provide a really strong competitive moat. And so it's become the first trillion dollar chip company, uh, thanks to its uh, absolutely central role in training AI systems. In the past couple of months, uh, as we've seen a boom in interest in generative AI, there's also been a, uh, a, a huge shortage of servers with NVIDIA chips inside, as even the world's biggest tech companies like uh, Amazon and Google struggle to get their hands on all of the GPUs that their customers are demanding. So there's a lot of themes in there, Chris, that we want to get to in the course of the podcast. But perhaps a good place to start is something that Paul was alluding to there in terms of the number of tiny transistors on the silicon chip. And I guess that's the technological marvel that is the modern semiconductor and sort of the now subatomic engineering that's required to make Moore's law hold. So perhaps you could sort of just talk us through how advanced chips have become and what is now required to sort of keep that Moore's law thing working. Well, to fit uh, billions of transistors on a chip the size of your fingernail, each one of them has to be roughly the size of a coronavirus. And so manufacturing them uh, requires a level of precision that's completely unparalleled in basically any other industry, uh, any other type of mass production. And uh, to do this has been the the struggle of the past 70 years to keep Moore's Law alive by doubling the number of transistors per chip every two years, which means shrinking the size of them uh, dramatically every couple of years. And uh, today, there's a very complex and extensive uh, ecosystem of companies that produce the software, the ultra-specialized materials, 
the precision uh, machine tools and then know how to bring all these different factors together um, in manufacturing uh, to do uh, this manufacturing with high levels of, of precision and accuracy. And this supply chain stretches from Europe uh, to the United States to uh, parts of East Asia like Japan and Taiwan, uh, where uh, you have companies that have specialized in just one facet of, uh, of, of this production. Uh, and each of these companies, because of Moore's Law, has to roll out a, a new set of products every couple of years, a tool that's even more advanced or uh, uh, materials that are uh, well suited to the next manufacturing process. So they, they all face this relentless pace of innovation, which only a couple of companies have managed to keep up with. So the way you describe the supply chain arrangements there, and indeed, the way you explained it in the book brought to mind a parable that the economist Milton Friedman used to tell me, you know, hold up a pencil and say, no one in the world knows how to make this pencil. It has the wood and the, the graphene and the brass and the rubber. Uh, and it relies on this complex um, division of labor and globalized supply chains. And I guess Friedman's point is that even something as humble as the pencil requires this degree of complexity. But you know, it seems to me that the silicon chip really is the acme of that kind of globalized supply chain process. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the history of how it came to be that we have this highly intense division of labor across the global economy. Well, it's, it's a it's a key question because uh, it's it's a way the industry has changed a lot over the last couple of decades. When the first chips were invented in the late 1950s, there really was no supply chain because chip companies tried to do it all in-house. They designed chips, they manufactured them, they fabricated their own silicon wafers, uh, they built their own machine tools, they invented their own design software. But it, as the process has become more and more complex, um, there has just inevitably been specialization across the supply chain. And so today, there's not a single company, nor is there a single country that can undertake every step in the chip production uh, process. And you can go even deeper than that. Within the most advanced chip makers like TSMC in Taiwan, there's not a single person that understands TSMC's production processes because there's a, a thousand or more process steps involved in chip manufacturing when you're inside of a fab, which is the what you call a chip manufacturing facility. And there's not a single person at TSMC that understands all 1,000 of those processes because they're all themselves uh, extraordinarily uh, complex. So, so yes, this is taking the, the pencil analogy uh, and making it a thousand or a, a million times uh, more complex. And, and the impact of that has been that for companies to enter the chip industry at any segment of the supply chain, the barriers to entry are really quite large because there's all sorts of really unique types of knowledge and often not intellectual property, but tacit knowledge that's built up inside of companies that is very hard to learn or to replicate outside of advanced companies. You can't really study at universities. Uh, you've got to learn it from doing it. Uh, inside a chip maker. And that has made many segments of the chip industry uh, extraordinarily uh, durable in their market structure um, because uh, these tacit knowledge uh, uh, requirements present real barriers to entry. And Chris, a uh, comparison that people often draw is between oil and chips, you know, foundational to the economies of the 20th and 21st centuries. And with, you know, important political and geopolitical roles as well. Indeed, we've done episodes of this podcast about the geopolitics of energy. Uh, a huge case of that is, of course, playing out in the world over the past 18 months in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But I thought we could perhaps talk about the ways in which that analogy doesn't hold because that sheds some light on the uniqueness of chips as well. You know, the concentrated production, the specialism, the, the choke points 
why don't you flesh some of those out for us to tell us why chips are are even more special in their role than than oil play previously. Yeah, no, I I think you're right that the oil analogy is correct in pointing at the economic criticality and the uh, entanglement with geopolitics. Um, But the oil industry is actually a lot less concentrated than the chip industry. If you look at advanced processor chips, 90% of them are produced in Taiwan by one company in just a couple of factories. Uh, Whereas the largest players in the oil industry, Saudi Arabia, Russia, United States, produce you know less than 15% each of, of the world's oil. And so there's much less concentration in energy. The other aspect is technology. You know, on, the, on the one hand, uh, oil companies are, um, are, are relying more than ever before on technology for their exploration, for optimizing their, their drilling processes, for the refining process. On the other hand, uh, there's just no comparison to the rate of technological improvement that the chip industry has seen. There's no other segment of uh, the economy, no other aspect of uh, human endeavor in history that has increased at the rate the chip industry has increased the number of transistors per chip, um, doubling for over half a century. And I, I like to th- think of other analogies, like what if airplanes flew twice as fast every two years? Well, we'd be at six times the speed of light by now. Uh, in, in most industries, if you get a productivity improvement of three or four percent a year, you've succeeded. In the chip industry, three or four percent would be an absolutely abject failure. And so that that technological um, uh, aspect is a huge differentiating factor from the oil industry, which is why there's a lot of companies that can more or less effectively drill for oil uh, in many different countries uh, with you know, some marginal uh, differences in, in efficiency, whereas there's just a couple of companies that can produce not just chips, but every aspect of the chip supply chain has roughly comparable levels of concentration in the hands of just a couple of companies. I suppose another way of sort of saying that, expressing that, is that there's fungibility in the oil market. You know, different grades of crude, while they may be different, and you'll have to change your refinery to deal with them. Ultimately, you can replace you know one with another, but actually, there isn't fungibility at the cutting edge of the chip industry because the smallest transistors on the most advanced chips really are kind of something different from further back from the productivity frontier. You know, that, that's absolutely right. And even at the lagging edge, less technologically advanced chips, it's not the case you can substitute one for another. If you look at the chip shortage the last couple of years in the auto industry and elsewhere, um, the problem wasn't a deficit of chips globally in numerical terms. We actually produced more chips in 2021 than in 2020 and more chips in 2022 than 2021. The problem was that the specific types of chips that car companies needed, uh, they couldn't get access to. And many of the world's chip makers couldn't produce that type of chip because their factories weren't uh, tooled for it. So yes, the market is is much less liquid because there's much more product differentiation and you can't just take a an iPhone chip and plug get into a computer and hope that it works because it won't. And you've mentioned TSMC, of course, this Taiwanese company crucial to um, the chip ecosystem. And I want to talk then about the US-Taiwan nexus of chip interdependence, because that's a crucial part of, of the story you tell in the book. And specifically, do you think of that nexus, that interdependence as stabilizing or destabilizing and i have in mind the idea of say weaponized interdependence does that actually lower the risks because the stakes are so high for everyone there you know is there a silicon shield over taiwan or by contrast is it you know, to stretch that analogy a silicon sword of damocles how do you think through that issue well it, it all depends on your assessment of how china's leaders make decisions and I think it's always been uh, difficult to know, and it's gotten more opaque the last couple of years. Um, I, I think the, the Silicon Shield thesis is most likely to hold 
if you think the most plausible military scenario is sort of a D-Day version 2.0, uh, where China tries in a massive invasion to take the island. And if it were to do so, uh, it would inevitably trigger a vast war, knock the chip-making facilities offline, and plunge the world's manufacturing economy into Great Depression levels of disruption. So that would be bad for everyone, bad for us, bad for, for China. Um, but I don't think that's the most likely scenario. I think the most likely scenario, uh, if China were to decide to escalate militarily, and again, I hope it doesn't, I don't think it's guaranteed to do so, but I think it's a non-zero percent and probably above a 10% uh, probability over the next decade. If you're sitting in Beijing, your uh, very strong incentive is to try to take Taiwan without triggering a U.S. response. Um, because if the U.S. gets involved, you end up with a massive war. If the U.S. doesn't get involved, you might get away with a small war. Uh, or even no war at all, if you can force Taiwan to fold uh, without fighting. And, and that's where scenarios like blockades look much more appealing from the perspective of Beijing. They're not easy, um, but they're much more likely to induce uh, Taiwanese surrender without fighting. And if you put yourself in the shoes of a U.S. president, uh, suppose China uh, implements a partial blockade of Taiwan, or not even stopping uh, the flow of products out of Taiwan, but just imposing, let's say, mandatory customs checks or phytosanitary checks by Chinese Coast Guard ships on uh, shipping into Taiwan's harbor. What would the U.S. do? Well, it's not going to sanction China uh, because sanctioning China would have just as large costs uh, on, on the U.S. and Europe and Japan as it would on China. And I think the experience of the Russia-Ukraine war has actually helped uh, some uh, U.S. leaders realize that sanctioning China is just a non-viable option. Would it use military force to stop China from imposing customs checks on uh, on ships going to Taiwan? Well, it could, um, but that seems like a highly risky uh, endeavor because if you choose to use force and China doesn't back down, you've got A, a war, and B, an economic disaster on your hands. And so you find yourself somewhat like in the position of Khrushchev during the Cuban Missile Crisis, except that now you're fighting over a, an island that's 100 miles offshore of your adversary, and you're in the position of having to decide whether to risk nuclear war and economic catastrophe to break a blockade. And in that scenario, I think the fact that the U.S. coming to Taiwan's aid would entail massive economic risk of disrupting these supply chains actually ends up deterring the U.S. from helping Taiwan. It's not guaranteed to, but it would be a factor that would push the U.S. to not get involved. And so actually, I think that increases the risk because Chinese leaders are running through these scenarios in their heads as well. They realize that the U.S. does not want to see a disruption in trade. And so if China can take steps that compromise Taiwan's sovereignty and undermine the credibility of U.S. security guarantees without disrupting trade and give the U.S. the choice of choosing to disrupt trade uh, in response, the U.S. might choose not to. And if so, the implications for Taiwan's security would be dire. So Taiwan sits on a geological fault line as well as a, a geopolitical fault line, If you, as you've been explaining. What would be the economic consequences, you, you started to talk about them. What would be the economic consequences of Taiwanese chip production going dark, you know, disconnecting from, from the world economy? Well, the, the easy part of the, of the answer is to look at high-end chips, the chips that go into smartphones, PCs, data centers, telecoms infrastructure. Um, you know, around 90% of the world's application processors for smartphones are produced in Taiwan. So you basically have no smartphones produced anywhere in the world the next six to 12 months. Um, PC production would fall by half because of uh, the largest number of PC processors produced in Taiwan. Data center rollout would grind to a halt because many of the chips and data centers, both GPUs that we talked about for AI, but also networking, 
uh, chips and data centers. So in the tech sector, you'd see massive impact. And if you look at um, all of the world's companies with trillion dollar valuations, you know, none of them can operate without chips from Taiwan. So you can uh, you can write off Silicon Valley for the short run. But I think actually that the larger economic impact would be on the rest of the economy um, because Taiwan produces almost all of the world's high-end processor chips, but it also produces a ton of lower-end processor chips. Um, and these lower-end processor chips go in cars and dishwashers and airplanes and coffee makers. Uh, and as we saw during the pandemic, when a very small deficit of a tiny number of chips caused several hundred billion dollars of disruptions in auto production. If we were to have a major decline in the availability of low-end processor chips, the implications for world manufacturing would be, you know, I think nothing, uh, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to call it catastrophic. Um, Taiwan produces 20 or so percent of the world's processor chips. Every car uh, has at least one and often dozens of chips made in Taiwan inside. And so actually the the challenge we'd face if we were to lose access to Taiwan's uh, semiconductors would be to make dumber devices. We, we'd be pulling out the blueprints of the 1990s uh, for refrigerators and dishwashers and cars and trying to find people who remembered how to make them without uh, without more advanced computing capabilities. And it would just take a long time to retool factories to do that. And in the interim, manufacturing production would plunge. So Chris, uh, as a consequence of that strategic logic you laid out there and the dire economic consequences. We've had the US CHIP Act and increasingly other countries are trying to get in on the act, so to speak, with their own industrial strategies and ambitions to become major chip producers. And I know it's early days so far, but do we have a sense of whether the CHIPS Act is having that desired effect and more broadly what the prospects are of chip design and production moving away from its highly concentrated current order? Well, I think we're, we've certainly already seen um, a major increase in, in investments in chip manufacturing in the U.S. and Japan, uh, even in Europe. I think we're starting to see that. Um, but that's that's sort of uh, obvious that if governments are going to fund chip making, you get more chip making as a result. I think the, the harder definition of success is will this continue after the subsidies are stopped? The, the U.S. government, Japanese government, others are hoping that if they can catalyze a bunch of new investment in the next five or so years, that will take on a self-sustaining character uh, and firms will voluntarily decide to keep investing over the long run, even if there aren't uh, such a large scale of subsidies. And this is possible. Uh, we see that um, there's a lot of path dependencies and where companies decide to invest. And if you have a reinvigoration of the chip manufacturing ecosystem in, in, in the U.S., for example, you'll get a larger labor force and more ecosystem players. And so that could lead to uh, larger long run trends in, in chip investment. But I think it's far from guaranteed because the, the cost structure of making semiconductor factories in the U.S. and Europe uh, and to a lesser extent in Japan is just meaningfully higher than in Taiwan or in Korea. You know, 20, 30, 40% more expensive to make in the US versus uh, in Taiwan. And so in the absence of long run subsidies, I think uh, it remains to be seen whether uh, the US or other countries can continue to have this current elevated level of investments in chip manufacturing in, in their countries. So then finally, and coming back full circle to AI systems, and I guess the performance of NVIDIA, I wanted to get your thoughts, Chris, on whether AI systems themselves as distinct from the physical chips, could also become an area of geostrategic competition. So what I have in mind there is, for example, did the dominance in the design of these systems or embedding a certain set of values inside these systems, is that going to become the next technological arms race? 
you know, I, I think we're already seeing political leaders in multiple countries trying to explore what levers they have over over the AI ecosystem, setting aside the, the hardware. Um, and and there have been some recent headlines. You may have seen that Microsoft is closing its AI research center in uh, China and moving or offering some of the researchers visas to Canada. Uh, and that's a very clear uh, symptom of this broader role that political factors are playing in AI. But I think what you'll find is that uh, political leaders have much less leverage over the rest of the AI stack, if you will, than they do over the hardware, uh, because it's much more diffuse. It's much harder to regulate, whereas the chip industry is concentrated and easy to regulate because there's just a couple of factories, a couple of facilities in the world that you uh, need to control and a couple of companies that produce the machines that go in those facilities. And they don't really face short run competition. In the long run, maybe they do if you regulate them too heavily. But in the short run, political leaders have realized they can sort of do whatever they want. Because uh, if you want advanced chips, you need to go to TSMC. And if you're TSMC, you need to buy machine tools from a small set of companies uh, in the US, Japan, and the Netherlands. And that has given politicians a ton of leverage over these companies. It's made the companies themselves uh, pretty unhappy. Um, but these companies uh, find themselves in an interesting position. For a long time, their shareholders realized that they had extraordinary market power, uh, which gave them very uh, high valuations. And then politicians realized that they had extraordinary market power, which opened them up to being uh, used as tools in this geopolitical game. Uh, I think that's somewhat unique to the, the chip industry and the hardware aspect of the AI stack. I think the rest of the AI stack, if you will, will be much less, uh, much less prone to that level of concentration, and therefore regulation will be uh, much less effective uh, when deployed on it. So I think that is all we have time for this week. Chris's book is Chip Wars, The Fight for the World's Most Critical technology it really is a fantastic read and i think crucial to understanding so many aspects of what's happening in the world both economically and politically and we highly recommend it and so all that remains is for me to thank chris for joining us today well thank you appreciate the invitation and to thank you all for listening so thanks very much and speak again soon This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment, recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections, or estimates, and provide no guarantee of future results.